Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. This type of episode is the main type now. It's a longer form interview in which I also discuss an interesting topic and some news in quantum computing with my interview guest. I'm calling it a hybrid episode. In this episode, I got to chat with Dr. Zlatko Manev. There was some technical difficulty there at the beginning, but Dr. Manev handled it extremely well. Super grateful that he was an awesome podcast guest. We got to chat about some very interesting work in quantum physics, how that relates to quantum error correction, and some quantum skills development. This talk got pretty technical, so strap in. So I have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Zlat Komenev, who has done some very interesting work in quantum physics with catching and reversing quantum jumps mid-flight. He also has some, done some work with IBM. Uh, Dr. Zlat Komenev, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Ethan, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd like to thank you for the invitation. It's special to me because I like your podcast and I was just listening to it last week, actually. Oh, that's awesome. Um, which episode was that? Uh, that was the one with Abe, or I think as you called him, Abraham. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. all. That was a good episode. Um, before we jump into your work with catching and reversing quantum jumps mid-flight, which of course everyone's going to want to hear about, could you give us a bit of background about how you got into quantum? Yeah, of course, Ethan. Um, where do I even begin, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think before this, we started this discussion, you said you also like to take things apart, sort of maybe starting out. Uh, way back when yeah and uh you know i got i was always inspired by people like nikola tesla and 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 so forth and maybe it wasn't until i took um summer classes uh at stanford university as a high school student that i got my first exposure to physics in the professional sense of you know going into a professional lab and and uh interacting with the quantum and other communities and I, i think it really uh, yeah, exactly. And I think it really began to tell me that uh, physics can allow you to discover nature at, at her deepest level, to uncover things that we thought were previously impossible. Uh, it allows you to understand or to kind of walk to the edge of human horizon of knowledge, as I like to to think about it, and, and peek over. Um, I don't know if you get a similar sense sometimes, but I, I like to... Uh, enjoy, I enjoy finding things out, basically. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> um, I was just going to say that's totally, um, I can relate to that because my first introduction to quantum physics was physics of the impossible by Michio Kaku. And he tries to bring oh, okay. it down to like a more pop science level. Um, but I thought that it was absolutely just so, so weird. And the fact that it only happens when you have things in such extreme conditions that you're sort of probing the boundaries of what's possible to be known. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I think. It's how could you, you know, not get interested in in something that talks and, and understands and talks about the impossible, right? like uh, an electron, for instance, being in two places at the same time, something that in our everyday experience just seems inconceivable almost. Um, or a photon teleporting from one place to another. So I, I like that about physics. You know, it, it allows you to to kind of peer on that edge between what we know, what is possible. Yeah. So yeah, this is where the technical difficulties happened. Still unsure what exactly happened. It had to do something with the software that I'm using to record these interviews called Zencaster. 
Um, Zencaster has worked great all the other times I've used it, uh, so this was just a fluke. Um, but yeah, we're going to get right back into it now. So, sorry about that. There was some technical difficulties with the audio. Um, we were just talking about how we love how base-level quantum physics is, how it allows us to probe the boundaries of the unknown and really just push our knowledge. Um, and you were talking about how, like, how could someone not fall in love with something like that? That's just so interesting. Absolutely. And Ethan, I think we just experienced part of the journey of going to the edge of knowledge, <laughs> technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, uh, one of the favorite quotes, uh, I don't know if you've heard this one from uh, that, that, that keeps me uh, going, you know, even when things get a little tough in, in the science, which, you know, it's the business of challenging is, is a quote by Einstein. And it goes something like, if I knew what I was doing, it wouldn't be called research. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have heard that. And I, I love that. Um, so, yeah, speaking of research, let's jump into your, your research on catching and reversing a quantum jump mid-flight. So I have a confession to make, which is the first time I heard about this, it wasn't like from your actual work. It was a YouTube video about it. Um, I don't remember where I found that YouTube video. All I remember is seeing the title and going, that's really interesting that there's there can't there's got to be something wrong there watching the first like 10 <laughs> seconds it wasn't explained very well i just sort of dismissed it out of hand as this is bunk pseudoscience so like this is this is big work uh, could you give a quick overview of what this is about <laughs> um well I'd, i i it's not the first time i've heard a similar reaction so I'm glad on the one hand that you find the experiment very stimulating. And I would like to assure you that quantum physics isn't broken, but there is much more to quantum physics uh, than perhaps we thought before. And this is what this experiment uh, gets into. Yeah. And uh, maybe a, a good place to start is to, to ask you, actually, bounce back an idea of what, what makes quantum physics and quantum mechanics different from the classical world in which we live in? You know, what makes it special? What stands out uh, you know, for you? Mm -hmm. about quantum yeah. so yeah quantum like obviously the most technical answer you can give is it's yeah it's inherently random um it is inherently uh i guess, I guess it's weird as less a less technical answer you've got these <laughs> sort of competing like something is a particle and a wave at the same time or it's electrons in one place and another at the same time um which I want to ask a bit more about that later, but yeah, it's, it's just weird and it's, it's sort of un, it's unpredictable, but I guess that's what your research is about predicting the unpredictable. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, exactly. So the experiment actually says that, well, maybe it's not quite as random as we thought that. And we know that because of the experimental results on catching and reversing a quantum jump, which I'll explain what that is in a second. Yeah, and uh, actually being able to to peer, if you want, into the potential future of an atom and of an electron of a qubit, and uh, prevent its uh, so-called or unreputed, uh, sorry, reputed quantum jump, quantum <laughs> leap, uh, which is supposed to be instantaneous, discrete, abrupt, and so on. Yeah, actually be able to predict it in a sense and reverse it from occurring altogether. Now I just threw out a lot mm -hmm. of jargon, so maybe let me back up to where you started and and. Uh, I love quotes, so I'm going to throw in another one by Einstein here yeah. since we're on this theme. Um, I think you've, you've probably heard you know, the, this quote by him that he was so upset, just like you thought, that quantum mechanics is too weird 
mm-hmm. and it departs too far from our world. So he famously wrote, God doesn't play dice with the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a funny reply that Niels Bohr, uh, the chief archi- one of the chief architects of quantum physics, who came up with the notion in many ways of energy levels, uh, he, he wrote back to Albert, uh, you know, Albert, when will you stop telling God what to do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this is kind of a funny side story of history, but, you know, to get uh, maybe to the more kind of physics and technical side of it, mm-hmm. these, these quotes epitomize one of the core tenets and features that are weird and that if we, at least we think and depart quantum from classical and that's fundamental unpredictability that no one and you know not even sort of god in the metaphorical sense can predict the outcome of a quantum measurement mm-hmm. um, just like yeah. earlier you brought up in our chat that you know when you do a quantum algorithm you get a probabilistic answer and no one can predict necessarily in each realization what answer you're going to get yeah Um, and if if i'm correct here this work doesn't change that it's the answer is still not you're not certain what it's going to be but you can sort of detect that something is going to happen what that something is remains a mystery Yes and no. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not saying that what we knew was wrong. It's saying that there's more to the story that allows okay. us to do things that we previously thought were uh, maybe impossible or not allowed, such as anticipating the occurrence of a quantum um, measurement or a quantum jump. And maybe this is where I should give a little bit more of an introduction to what the actual uh, physical <laughs> context is. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Um, so imagine an atom or imagine a qubit. Mm-hmm. Okay. A qubit has two energy levels, right? A ground state, which is the lowest state it could possibly have. And the one state. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the special thing about qubits, uh, are, well, one, they're discrete, right? They can only have zero or one energy. They can't have an energy of 0.5, 1.6, you know, nothing in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. That's discreteness. It's one of the pillars of quantum physics. That's what quantum in a way means. And the other one is um, that when you observe, say, a superposition of the zero and one state, you or you do something to the atom, you can't really anticipate or predict whether you'll get a zero or a one. You can make statistical you know, answers. Well, half the time I'll get zero, half the time I'll get one, but I can never right. really be sure. And, and so this is a fundamental departure from, from the way that we do things in classical computing and in classical physics. Uh, it's just impossible to know ahead of time. Uh, and I, this is what Einstein, in a way, disagreed with. Um, now, quantum jumps are a very, are a, a kind of a primitive, basic notion of quantum physics. They say, and they occur in quantum error correction and so forth. But before I get there, let me go back to 1920s and say, how does the atom go from zero to one? if it can't ever be in the middle. Hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's where you get this idea of a quantum jump or in the more pop science lingo, uh, a quantum leap where it's instantaneous. It just sort of uh, teleports from one to the other in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of things that seem weird to our conventional notion, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
it's it's kind of like if you have a, a kitchen shelves, right? You have cupboards in your kitchen. They have shelves. The lowest shelf is the ground level. The next shelf is the first excited state. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the cup can't be in the middle between the two shelves. But how does it get from one shelf to the other? Well, you know, Niels Bohr in 1913, he was basically asked this question about the atom, and he said, "Well, it takes a quantum jump." Um, <laughs> and you know, down the people people in a way presume that this is abrupt instantaneous uh and uh, discrete uh, transition mm-hmm. uh, you know the cup suddenly just appears in from zero and <laughs> from the bottom shelf in the top shelf it's never in the middle <laughs> i mean it would make uh putting dishes away easier i would think you could just <laughs> poke the cup and it jumps up to the top <laughs> <laughs> that's a it's a great idea for a next research project <laughs> <laughs> And um, and so this is you know the kind of very loose introduction to to what a quantum jump is. It answers this very basic question: If I have an atom and I subject it to a force that tries to steer the atom from the ground to the excited level, how does the atom actually make that transition? Now, a real mm-hmm. atom is an open quantum system, meaning it's always, in a way, being observed. It's always being measured by the environment or by an experimentalist or someone. Right. And there is a f- a critical difficulty here um, because uh, when you have a strong, you know, if you try to actually look at what's happening, right? If I want to answer this question, I'm going to take my measurement apparatus, my microscope or whatever, and, and try to see in real time what the atom is doing as I am also driving it or as I'm trying to push the cup from the bottom shelf to the top shelf, you know, I'm trying to take a video camera and look at it. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and- um Go on. Uh, that I guess what's coming next is that observation inherently is going to change it as you try to measure it by bouncing light off of it or whatever that may be. You're going to change the state that you're trying to observe. Enter the weirdness of all quantum, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, everything in quantum physics is deterministic, continuous, smooth evolution governed by a first-order differential equation, Schrodinger's equation, yep. until measurement. Huh. Measurement is where unpredictability and discreteness actually appear in quantum physics. Yeah. And is measurement covered in Schrodinger's equation? It... No, it's sort of that that weird where it breaks down and you've got to go from quantum to classical. Absolutely. It's beyond the jurisdiction of just Schrodinger's equation. You know, that's why we have this almost ad hoc separate postulate called von Neumann's postulate, the projection postulate that tells you how to take the psi squared magnitude of the wave function and that gives you, you know, some probability outcome. Hmm. Well, um that doesn't really work very well in the situation of the <laughs> quantum jump. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you have an always on measurement, it's continuous and you have an always on drive. I'm constantly trying to push the atom from the bottom to the top and I'm trying to measure it. Now you can't tell me that, Oh no, you can't do this. <laughs> I'm doing it. What do you mean? I can do it. <laughs> this is a perfectly valid physical situation and experiment. I can do it. You know, we say, Oh, you can't measure two things at once. Of course I can measure two things at once. I can hook up two detectors and measure position and momentum at the same time. It's just that the answers aren't going to converge necessarily, right? That the, mm-hmm. you know, these are these are physically possible things. The same thing here. You know, I, this is actually a very common thing. 
we drive atoms, we drive qubits with Rabi pulses or whatever, pi pulses. I think you talked with Abe about what a pi pulse is. You know, this is how yeah. we do gates with, um, with, uh, with drives. And we also measure. Now, in a quantum jump, you have this, um, like you said, striking opposition between the deterministic forces of the drive and the stochastic random forces of the measurement, which infuse this unpredictability. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you get was actually the subject of debate for almost uh, 80 years, about seven decades. Um, Niels Bohr and colleagues argued that there should be quantum jumps that well, what you would see is that the atom doesn't take some continuous or smooth transition from the ground to the excited level, but rather there is an abrupt, instantaneous, discrete transition from the ground to the excited state. Now, mm-hmm. Schrodinger almost polemically opposed him. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the story. I no. Uh, yeah, this is. I wish they taught some of this history in the in the in the textbooks because there's some jewels. Uh, <laughs> Schrodinger <laughs> actually, he was so upset about this whole notion of quantum jumps because he he even wrote in his um, in a 1950 paper, if all this damn quantum jumping were really here to stay, I should be sorry. <laughs> I ever got involved with quantum theory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I'm... Maybe a little oh. bit hyperbole there, but... Uh... <laughs> well, you know, you would think so. I, I'm just not able to convey his Austrian accent. <laughs> I think it would sound <laughs> a lot more serious. <laughs> um, and, you know, he wasn't kidding. He has two papers on are there quantum jumps. He actually uh, really thought everything was continuous and smooth. Unfortunately, he was in a way proven wrong in the 1970s by, by what, who, some people that later became Nobel laureates uh, like uh, uh, Wineland and, and, uh, and others. And uh, there's also Rainier Blatt and colleagues who measured quantum jumps in the sort of 1986, I think. And they were able to actually observe that in fact, you know, when you do this experiment in, in nature, you see these discrete, abrupt-looking transitions, and they're completely unpredictable. No one can say when the next one is. Hmm. And since then, quantum jumps have become very key. I mean, when you when you measure a parity stabilizer in a quantum error correction code, or or um, when you have an error in a quantum algorithm, we think of that, those as quantum jumps unpredictable stochastic random quantum jumps that occur during their calculation and oftentimes they're disasters right they corrupt your calculation because right, there's a yeah. measurement exactly that is doing something that you can't anticipate um and so he, so i guess the, the question is oh sorry question question becomes can you predict it even though everyone says you can't Absolutely, yeah. So this is uh, this is this is the kind of question that when you probably read about, you know, when you watch that video on on YouTube, you're like, no, of course you can't. I mean, everybody teaches you you can't. You know, that's impossible. We know. Come on, like we've done a hundred years of quantum <laughs> experiment, <laughs> and um, of course, you know, I, I certainly thought and think in a way the same way. But it turns out that there's more to the story. Um, and uh, because, you know, we, we have done these experiments, but one thing we've never had the ability to do ever until now is to really zoom in on the time of that 
appearingly instantaneous transition and actually really probe it with, with perfect efficiency. The problem is that transition is super fast. It happens in an unpredictable time. And we don't have we, you know, the experimental apparatus that can really catch and resolve every transition when it occurs. You know, it's, we, we call that the quantum measurement efficiency. We don't have a quantum measurement efficiency of unity where we can really capture all the information from the atom or the qubit. It tends, you know, we lose a lot of it. You know, measurements, our measurements are imperfect. There's a lot of imperfections and so forth. And, and they obscure, obscure and blur the situation. Um, so you might ask, okay, well, uh, I guess maybe there is a way to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. that was what your work was on, right? It you I guess, walk me through what your setup was for observing and predicting these quantum jumps. Yeah, exactly. So um, there is, um, maybe to give you a little bit of background here, there, I attended a summer school uh, while I was still a PhD student at, in Scotland. And that's where I saw a theoretical prediction by uh, a famous theoretical physicist called Howard Carmichael. And he said, well, you know, if you could um, set up the experiment and go back to these 1986 experiments and, and actually do it with perfect measurement, quantum efficiency, and you have all these other things, then, you know, this new theory called quantum measurement uh, or quantum trajectory theory predicts that maybe the jump shouldn't actually be continue, uh, discrete, but smooth and continuous. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, you know, in this, I got very excited because I was like, wow, that's, you know, this is really amazing. could be revolutionary. But he concluded with the very unfortunate conclusion of saying, oh, uh, <laughs> you know, this is all very nice, but it's just theory because it remains far out of reach of experimental atomic physics for the foreseeable future. And yeah. that's when I got excited and thought, oh, man, you know, like some of the things I've been working on in the last few years on superconducting quantum devices at the time at, uh, at Yale with Michel Deboré in uh, superconducting qubits, maybe we can actually uh, take some of these um, very recent developments done for quantum computation and and feedback and error correction and apply them to um, this very fundamental problem and uh, and so so I thought oh maybe there's a way to actually take this atomic experiment realizing in the world of circuits and circuit quantum electrodynamics and so yeah. that's the stage in which the experiment actually happens okay interesting when normally when I think of circuits I think of running a quantum algorithm, not necessarily performing an experiment, I guess, on the qubits themselves. Yeah, and, uh, you know, qubits, qubits like attention too. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, here when I say circuit, I also mean uh, an electromagnetic uh, circuit, um, a, a physical circuit of, you know, inductors and capacitors and superconductors. Oh, okay. Which is the basis, of course, of the qubits that you, in Qiskit or, you know, in any other platform, you actually do run the um, the actual um, uh, quantum logic circuits, like an X gate, a Hadamard gate, a C-naught, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But maybe, uh, sorry, maybe I should get back to your question about the experiment. Yeah, yeah, the um, so with that nice long introduction, <laughs> what actually happens? Um, well, the experiment does exactly what we said, going back to Bohr's and Schrodinger's and Einstein's argument about these things. It takes a qubit, two levels, and it drives mm -hmm. it from 
the ground to the excited level, and it measures it at the same time. Now, I came up with a very specific scheme that allows me to measure it not just in any way, but in essentially a perfect way with 91% measurement quantum efficiency. So I can wow. resolve and detect every single uh, photon emitted by the measurement apparatus and know the exact timing of that photon. <laughs> um, and so that allows me to do something very special. It allows, it allows us to ask the question, what really happens at the time of the last click? The last click, which um, I should explain that when the atom is in the ground state, you get a lot of signal, you get a lot of photons that come to your detector. When the atom is not in the ground state, it's in the excited state. We call that a dark state. You don't mm -hmm. get any signal, uh, no photons. And that's how you can distinguish or measure that it's either in the ground or the excited. Okay, interesting. So is that is that because you are, you're, I guess, sending it photons, and if it's in the ground state, it doesn't really have a place to put those, so it just sends them right back. Whereas if it's in the excited state, it can sort of hold on to them a bit more? Um, yeah, so when it's in the ground state, and this was actually done by, uh, this, this particular scheme was invented by uh, Hans Demelt, who's a, who, who won a Nobel Prize somewhat later. Um, he, um, he came up with the scheme of having a qubit coupled to a third level, and you basically shine a bright light, uh, laser if you want, at, mm -hmm. the ground at the zero or the ground level. And when the atom is in the ground level, the atom scatters a lot of light. It's like a mirror. And when the atom is not in the ground level, it's in the excited level, it doesn't scatter the light. Okay. So it's like, it's like a mirror that turns on when the atom is in the ground and it's transparent when the atom is excited. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. So then what you can ask is, what happens at the time when, when the last photon is uh, reflected from that mirror? Uh, when we say that the quantum jump has taken place? And, uh, and this is, you know, what the experiment I do does is it zooms into that time and it shows that, you know, contrary to the view we've previously held, um, on this very fine grain, super fast time scale, the way the atom goes from the ground to the dark state isn't an abrupt, discontinuous and uh, totally random uh, trajectory. Rather, it's a smooth, continuous glide in Hilbert space. Right from from it's a, it goes through a superposition, a Schrodinger cat-like state, <laughs> of the ground to the uh, uh, excited level. Um, I Interesting. Think you have a question. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So, um, does it? You say that it it goes through a Schrodinger cat-like state. It's a superposition. Does it follow the Schrodinger wave equation, or is it something entirely different? Oh, this is oh, this is a beautiful. I love this. So, so <laughs> this is a great question. Um, I think I even had a discussion on on some at some point. Well, with many physicists, uh, but you know, and even Sean Carroll, I think, got roped into this one at some point uh, on, on on media, on social media. And uh, no, it by no, I do not believe that it is possible to predict that in any way from just the Schrodinger equation. Hmm. Okay. It's beyond the jurisdiction of just Schrodinger's equation, and. That's because you have to really account for the measurement uh, action, for the information exchange between the qubit and the measurement apparatus. And that profoundly disturbs the dynamics. 
it makes the dynamics actually very fast. It makes them non-unitary, as we say in quantum physics, uh, and uh, non-hermitian, hmm. um, uh, or sorry, non-hermitian rather, not not necessarily non-unitary. Um, and uh, it's a um, very special type of evolution that's governed by what we call quantum trajectory theory. Now we don't necessarily know that it always works, but uh, until we've done these experiments, but it's able to unify the seemingly opposite dynamics of continuous deterministic smooth evolution by Schrodinger's equation with the random measurements, uh, kind of stochastic, abrupt-looking dynamics by uh, measurements and combine them into one more generalized type of Schrodinger equation. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, This may be a little more detailed than you wanted, but I'll throw it out. No, I I love it. Um, Yeah, that's entirely fascinating. And because you're able to you're able to do this prediction of something's going to occur um you talked just very briefly you mentioned that it relates to quantum error correction how how did those two things connect yes um and i have to maybe explain maybe the bigger picture of what it actually does in a way we can okay, yeah. to, to tell you that how it relates um, what we found is that the atom f- follows a predictable path uh, in Hilbert space, a predictable trajectory from the ground to the excited state that is always the same for any two quantum jumps that occur on this very fine-grained time scale. It's not a different path that the atom takes, but every time it's the same path it, with the same characteristic time, it's smooth and continuous. And so for a quantum jump to occur, it must necessarily go through this kind of tanch-like hyperbolic tangent curve um, from the ground to the excited state. Now, what that means is that we have just found a little window of predictability. Uh, We have been able to engineer a little window of predictability in the jump dynamics, right? So the jump, because it's not instantaneous, before it occurs, there's a physical process by which it does so. And we can use that physical process as an advanced warning signal uh, because it's associated with the record and the measurement that we can detect. Uh, to make it maybe a little more simple, I like to give this analogy with a volcano. <laughs> Imagine that uh, you have a qubit uh, or a town. <laughs> and uh, this town is under a volcano. Now, this volcano er- can erupt in a totally unpredictable way at some point in time. Um, however, even though on the long term it's totally unpredictable, no one can say when the next eruption will occur, nonetheless, there are certain telltale signals that if you have the right measurement apparatus and so on, you can detect that can always give you an advance warning imminently before the eruption of the volcano. Mm-hmm. Right, and then what that allows you to do is to signal the town and you know tell everyone to evacuate or whatever you need to do, and it's similar in the quantum jump case. Um, there, there is um, because we have this little window of predictability. We know we can uh, see the telltale signals in the ground, so to speak, uh, the no click record, and we can exploit that as an advance warning to anticipate the potential imminent occurrence of a quantum jump. We can also intervene feeding back on that information into the dynamics of the atom 
not just to passively sit by and watch, but to actually prevent the jump from occurring altogether, uh, avoiding disaster in the town. <laughs> um, the town is saved. The town is saved. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the amazing thing, the amazing thing is that, uh, so we're able to save the town in about 82% of the cases of, wow. of potential eruptions of quantum jumps. I'm, I'm hope I'm, I'm not taking this analogy too far. <laughs> um, or uh, in, but we also know or expect that if we had perfect measurement apparatus, and you know, if we could improve the experiment even more, then we could do it in a hundred percent of the, every single time. You know, there would wow. never be a disastrous eruption. We can always prevent it. So that's kind of the that's something that you know would have been is in a way would be considered impossible to anticipate and prevent the occurrence of the quantum jump before it does occur, um, you know, with, with 100% certainty, almost, determ- you know, deterministic, like in that sense. Um, and yeah. and that's, that's what the experiment actually demonstrates uh, in, in the Nature publication. That's super interesting. And yeah, I, I like the point that as technology improves and we can make incremental increases on how good our accurate how accurate and good our measurements are and the way that we control the volcano or the qubits that we can get this to better and better accuracy um, and do it more than 81 percent of the time um, so yeah going back to the question of this relating to quantum error correction um i so Quantum errors happen. Um, uh, one of the ways is uh, state decoheres, um, and you are you're losing that information because you're going from a quantum state sort of back to a classical state. Um, I'm wondering how that ties in specifically because you're talking about going from ground state to excited state, which is in our qubit example going from um, zero to one, but in the, in these quantum errors, a lot of the times you have it not in either zero or one, but rather both in a superposition. Are you still able to use the same technique in that case? Right. So, um, you know, the experiment is done in a particular setting. Now you can extrapolate from here on, you know, potential future um, things. But and and I and the idea is that yes, you should be able to engineer the system in such a way so as to prevent uh, these bad quantum jumps. Now, I, I can mention that there's not necessarily anything special about the ground state. It's just the way we set up the experiment. We were focused on the jump from the ground to the dark state. We could have sort of set it up in such a way that we were focused on the jump from the excited down to the ground state okay. you know, by, by setting up the levels. So it's, it's a much more general principle. Of course, you know, I can only specifically talk about what we experimentally demonstrated and you know anything else is more or less extrapolating speculation in a way but you know we have theories that we believe um now jumps uh, or errors in decoherence is interesting because um you know the the t1 process i think abe and you talked about this was uh we say that it goes to a classical state often right Uh, that's not really true. I mean, the quantum atom is always quantum. It's not like suddenly it's classical. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> that's not what happens. What happens is that it randomly at a random time and an unpredictable random time has is subjected to a quantum jump. 
that and what happens is that each time you run your experiment this uh, bad agent you know flips your qubit at an unpredictable time and so each time you run your protocol it's it's occurring at a different time and on average it looks like junk <laughs> it, and we call that a statistical classical mixture a mixture of density matrix and that's why we say the purity of the state decays by which we just mean that you haven't been keeping up with the measurement record hmm. um and the idea here is to say that well you know if you if you can become the um uh, sort of either omniscient observer or if you can become if you can somehow track these jumps um, then maybe you can like we did in the um, simple example here with the quantum jump case uh, the in the experiment i mentioned then maybe you can monitor for the onset of uh, these bad jumps and then have the ability to like in the volcano case intervene before a disaster does strike and hmm. uh, prevent that from occurring um, errors can happen both from going from the excited to the ground, but you also have thermal errors in a quantum computer going from the ground to the excited. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're in a superposition, you know that those errors they they still occur in a sense as as uh, as jumps, but they they just affect you in a slightly different way. So, like in quantum error correction, you can work in a uh, sort of larger space if you. Maybe I'm getting a little too deep, so I'll, I'll pause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I love the technical information, um, but maybe if we take a step back, uh, quantum error correction is sort of, I mean, if you think about classical error correction, there's not just one way that you can do error correction. Um, mm -hmm. Are there are there multiple different um, avenues in quantum error correction, or is there sort of like a one standard? one-size-fits-all solution. <laughs> no, no. Atoms have personalities and sizes, too. Uh, <laughs> or qubits, if you want. Um, I, I think the community is exploring a number of different avenues. There are certain uh, approaches that are more favored currently than others, or maybe more people are working on, uh, things like surface codes. And, uh, and they're much more sort of new ideas like continuous bosonic error correction, error correcting codes. And um, like you said, you know, with the classical qubit, you can redundantly encode the information of one bit into three bits uh, mm -hmm. or into five bits. Um, or maybe you don't encode it into five consecutive bits, but in five bits staggered across different memory segments of, of your floppy disk or whatever, right? Because <laughs> each one tailors to a particular noise channel. So you see the when we engineer like quantum error correction and so forth, you can do it in a general sense, but it, it tends to have more overhead. And you might want to think about uh, what exactly are the physical noise processes. And then you might want to tailor your error correcting algorithm to, to be best suited to the actual quantum jump errors that occur in practice. Um, so I think there's a lot of exploration at IBM and, and at many other academic institutions on, you know, how do we tailor these codes and make them practical for near-term intermediate you know, quantum uh, systems. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So sort of to, to summarize what you're saying there a bit, um, you've got to make sure you know what is happening Um what exactly the types of errors you're getting in order to be most effective with your quantum error correction. Is that right? I think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Okay, so quantum error correction is obviously a fascinating topic, and we could talk about it for hours. Um, but if we can move on to quantum skills development, which before we jumped on the the program, you said that you were very interested in um, not just at IBM, but on a personal level. Um, I know that IBM works a lot on quantum education with like the Kiskit textbook, um, and they've got the Kiskit summer school going on starting in just a couple days here. Um, you're helping out with that, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am teaching two, uh, two days um, in the second week on superconducting quantum devices and measurements. Uh, so if you want to know more in depth about measurements and so forth, you can uh, watch the lectures. They're going to be recorded and posted live. And I think there's a bunch of exercises and, and, and so forth, labs that we created that go along with that. So it's an amazing resource that didn't exist. I was also shocked and amazed. I mean, I think, I don't know, 5,000 people have already signed up. I think we had to close wow. down the sign up. That is a lot of people interested in quantum computing and physics. Um, and and it's really changing the landscape. I mean, when I when I got into quantum information in 2007 or so back at UC Berkeley when I was a student there, um, we didn't, you know, I didn't have any of these resources. It was a lot harder to... <laughs> join the community to to have a to to get anywhere <clears throat> and and you know i think this the, the kinds of things we're doing at ibm and the kinds of things i did with open labs and the kinds of things that people are doing in general are are really increasing the access to education and opening avenues not just to education but also to career pathways and to the mm -hmm. professional skills you're going to need as you grow and develop and um, I think the summer school is an excellent prime example of that. So I encourage anyone interested in quantum to to follow the lectures and watch them. They're free, publicly available. Um, yeah. I guess you have a, a link in yeah. the notes. I'll have a link in the show notes, of course. Um, and I just want to mention that I, I totally agree. It's great that we have all these new resources, but you did sound a bit like my grandparents when they say, back in my day, I had to walk <laughs> uphill both ways to school and back. <laughs> You young guests don't know how good you have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's true. The The explosion of knowledge and free resources that we've had in just even the last couple of years has been incredible. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm serious. It was a lot. It, well, now you're, you're going to say something like an old <laughs> but there, there is a profound and tremendous shift. I mean, I have just seen witness in the last few years. Um, it, and especially the stuff at IBM, I, I think, is... You know, I, I commend the team here for doing an absolutely outstanding job. Uh, you know, Abe, I think, talked a lot about it. Here's another example, yeah. right? So what do you do after you go to a summer school? How mm. do you stay in the loop with the community? Yeah. How do you grow from there? Yeah. You know, maybe you go, maybe you're in a quantum program at a university, in which case you're totally covered. But what if you're maybe not in there yet, right? So there's the IBM quantum Kiskit textbooks to which I also contributed. So it's not, if you want to go down the textbook route, you can, it's open source. You can go and do the exercise there and learn from there. And there's a big community and Slack channel. So you can be actually very engaged. So you're not sort of on your own and, you know, some corner somewhere, you're actually very much plugged into the community and you can and then you can say, well, how do I now come to the edge of the community so I can peer onto, you know, where I, the horizons are open and do my own uh, mark, leave my own mark on this community or do something helpful to the community? Well, that's that's why you can plug into the uh, like quantum life seminar. So I, I host the 
on Fridays, we do the, I, I invite people from all over the community to talk about the latest in quantum machine learning and quantum devices and qubit algorithms and so forth. Um, and, you know, this, this type of stuff, of even a few years ago, was very hard to find online. But now you can just log into YouTube or, or Kiskit or, you know, whatever platform you use. And, and it's, it allows you to jump in quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got, I've got two questions there. The first one is, are you trying to steal my audience with that uh, live seminar <laughs> series? <laughs> no, no, I think I, no. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I think that's aimed at, uh, it is, it's, it's aimed at a more, uh, like academic level seminar series, uh, where people, uh, present, uh, sort of an academic presentation of a recent paper they've published or a series of papers. Um, so I would say it rather builds on and complements. So, um, uh, I, I hope not. And uh, good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Moving right along. Uh, Yeah. So the second question was for people who maybe aren't more uh, academic or they want to jump in, but maybe they don't even have a background in classical computing. um, What skills do you think are the most important that people should, you know, work towards uh, in order to have a career in quantum? It's a it's a good question. Uh, there's a report even that came out from the government recently, sort of looking at exactly this question. I can give you some of my personal view, which um, it's it's open ended because I don't think there's one path. I think there's yeah. several different tracks, um, and uh, the, we have so much to build, so much to grow. It's very young, and there is a tremendous you know, potential, you're aware of the base of the root of the tree. So, you know, I could tell you to focus on quantum physics and quantum 101, but honestly, you know, you could be a software developer who doesn't know a lot of quantum, maybe has some basic linear algebra, and you could actually still have a, to the community, a pretty substantial impact. Um, I'm, you know, I'm currently like having job posts for people like that, trying to find people with the skill sets. And it's, it can be a little bit difficult to find the right skill sets, but you know, you can also be a microwave engineer. Um, all of our devices are basically microwave devices, uh, but with quantum added on top. <laughs> so you can plug in from there. Um, if if you have a CS background, you know, you go down more, maybe more the algorithms path. If you have a fabrication background, you know, to actually have a long coherence and actually good functioning qubit, we need a ton of people with experience and expertise in nanofabrication, microfabrication, and uh, design layout devices. Um, so it, so there's not necessarily one set of skills you need. I think maybe the question will be more targeted towards, you know, how do I get into more quantum programming and things like that? Is, is that what you're heading? Um, I guess just quantum in general. I think that it's it's interesting because a lot of times you can... It's I, what I've noticed, at least, is that it's really easy to jump into the very basics, and then you hit the medium level information, and it's a bit harder to find that. Um, and once you get to, at least on your own, um, potentially at university, that's different. And then once you get to actually doing it um, and being an expert in it, you sort of have enough background knowledge to find, you know, read papers. Whereas if you're coming from a beginner and you don't have that background, it's, you know, it's a lot of jargon. It's hard to process. And I, I don't know. It's just, 
um, it's, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of really basic information, which is great for getting people into it, but then how do you keep people going, um, mm. towards that career path? That's a really, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. You don't want a leaky pipeline, right? You want a well right. continued, um, yeah, I think, like you said, now there's, now there's a lot of these beginning resources, um, and then the question is, well, what's next? I think that's being built up as we go along. As more people get to that stage, there's more demand and need. And I think, you know, um, I, I, I don't want to talk just about IBM stuff, but <laughs> I just happen to know that, you know, that part of the textbook is now expanding into more advanced sections on quantum devices and more quantum optics and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I think this is where you... Um, you can look at the resources and hopefully these beginning resources can provide you like the seminars and so forth um, can link you to um, what is the latest research. And in those seminars, there are a lot of references, right? They're usually review papers. So once you start to get the slightly more advanced level, you can look at the review papers, which give you uh, the academically published review papers, which summarize uh, one subset of the field and they can give you a good perspective. Um, now, how do you orient yourself a little bit better within that? I think that's where the community comes in. Um, hmm. you, 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 at least, you know, if I had to do it uh, from from scratch now, I would, or in a new community, I would um, try to interact and, you know, go to the open conferences or participate in the Slack channel discussions and kind of look at and learn from people who are maybe a little bit further, have seen a little further ahead than I have today. Um about the paths that they've taken so that I can get a sense of what are the resources. There are a lot of actually really good books on quantum out there, but they can be a little hard to find or follow mm -hmm. people, you know, who, who discuss it. And, um, um, I, I think, you know, staying, staying close to those resources and being plugged into the community is a good way. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I think that asking lots of questions of people who, like you said, might be a little bit further along and can help you out. is definitely a great way. Um, so absolutely. I have absolutely no transition or segue here. So we're just going to, I'm going to ask you about it. Um, so Kiskit is supposed to be hardware agnostic. It's, it's designed to be, um, and a, a new step made towards that was now Kiskit code, um, natively can be run on Alpine quantum technologies, ion trap computers as a backend. Um, and I guess, yeah, just tell, talk to me a bit about like, what's the significance of that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's very important and good to have the ability to uh, first of all formulate your quantum program and quantum description in such a way that it captures the essence, right? And it's not necessarily too tied down to the hardware. And this is a trend I think happening right now that we need a little bit more abstraction in quantum, right? On the one hand, as with early devices, you want to really understand what's happening at the level of the physical hardware, right? Whether it's an ion trapped computer, you know, Alpine Q or IBM superconducting computer, or, you know, some other quantum computer at the same time, because that allows you to optimize things and so forth. At the same time, once you start to get to slightly more sophisticated protocols and complicated algorithms, and maybe you want to use the quantum Fourier transform as a sub-module, you need to begin to have more of a level of abstraction. And I think that's where it's important to, to capture, um, to capture that. It, it is actually maybe somewhat shocking and great that 
we have this bridge now be, uh, among communities that have traditionally been maybe disparate in a way. <laughs> you know, the world of atoms and ions, while it has inspired the superconducting qubit field for, for decades, it, it is it is almost on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to energy scales, when it comes to, to you know, lab equipment, you know, use lasers, not microwaves, you use, you know, terahertz or, you know, um, uh, use light photons at, you know, 500 nanometers as opposed to microwave photons, which have, you know, parts of a Kelvin energy spectrum. They're, they're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of opposites in that way. Uh, yeah. You need a fridge. You can operate at room temperature. There, you know, there's sort of different worlds on the physical level, but it comes to illustrate that you can, you know, run Kiskit on these different systems and to 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 show that you know quantum is quantum and we can actually capture its essence and be able to natively run among these different systems. I think I think it's a really beautiful thing for the community and, and a big step forward. Yeah. Definitely. I think that's it's super interesting seeing these hardware agnostic solutions come out and just it, it points to, like you said, the fact that you can get to the heart of your algorithm um, and not really, I guess, not not care, but not have to worry too much about the back end and you can play around and find which back end works best. Um, and I think that my next question is, if I already have a circuit written for, let's say, one of IBM's smaller superconducting qubit devices, and I want to translate that over to the AQT device and like run some comparative benchmarks, how hard would that be? Like, How involved in that process? Is it just changing a little bit of the code, or is it going to take me a couple hours? Um, you'd, you'd have to really ask the AQT guys or the Kiskit guys doing that part. I, I haven't had the pleasure to run that. <laughs> So okay. I can tell you. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. And I think um, as we wrap up, just last questions are always, um, what do you think is the biggest challenge in quantum computing right now? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Well, I think part of it is building up the, uh, not it's not a challenge, but a necessity, you know, building up and training the next generation uh, of, of quantum scientists, developers, and so on, uh, coming back to the education and outreach and uh, on the physical practical side, I think it's it's most people will certainly agree that it's quantum errors and yeah. quantum error correction. Uh, we we absolutely must um, push on that and understand that better and develop it more and explore more and do the research because you know no physical device will ever be perfect right there are always going to be some errors i mean even classical computers which have very low error rates still have error correction um and you know we have we have to make the devices physically better continuously but at the same time we need to um really come up with new very clever ways to undo errors to invert errors to mitigate errors um so you know, there's been some cool work that came out from from our labs on mitigating errors, right? Maybe not perfectly fixing the errors, but being mm -hmm. able to extend the computational reach beyond what you would have had otherwise, maybe by a factor of like five or ten or whatever, some num some some significant number. Wow! Um, and that's promising because you know, if you can suddenly do ten times more, that's that's a pretty good thing. So it's coming up with these schemes that aren't, I think, necessarily requiring a billion qubits or 10 years from now, but can work with the more physical and practical devices of today and either 
very efficiently mitigate the, the, the noise, the errors, the crosstalk, uh, or even correct them at some level. Yeah, definitely. That's something that I hear a lot. Um, I think that there's a, there's a split between increased coherence times and decrease errors. And it's interesting to see which people fall on which one is more important. Um, and so then the, uh, yes. the those are those are two two sides of the same coin almost. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so then, last question is, what do you think is the biggest promise or the most promising outcome that you you see coming out of quantum computing in let's say the next uh, up to ten years? <laughs> I uh, have been kind of sh personally embarrassed and shocked by how my predictions every year are actually outpaced so, <laughs> so i am most excited for what i haven't been able to predict <laughs> that is a very good answer um zlatko thank you for coming on the show uh, where can people find out more about you and your work um yeah thanks ethan well i i guess i'm fairly active on twitter uh, and i have a website i might start a blog sometime soon um <laughs> So it's uh, zlatkominev.com, um, my first name, last, uh, first name, last name.com, or Twitter, zlatkominev. I think you have the links. So all the usual places. And uh, I hope we can engage and stay in touch. Yeah, I definitely want to stay in touch. It's been an honor having you on the show. It's been my pleasure and honor, too. All right, so thank you for bearing with me through the technical difficulties. Um, I don't have any questions or corrections. I did get a point of feedback from someone on LinkedIn who said, quote, dope podcast. Uh, that made me very happy. Thank you. Um, please send me your feedback. If you want to send me a question or just general feedback about the show, maybe I made a mistake or uh, you think that a guest interview or a guest interviewee made a mistake, please let me know. Um, I can get that correction out or answer the question here on another channel. Just reach out to me on minds.com at one Ethan Hansen or email me at one Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com or you could even send me an anchor voice message. Uh, there are links to all of these in the show notes. Okay, so if you want to get a free sample of Quantum Computing for Developers by Johan Vos, who was an older podcast guest, um, just reach out to me. Let me know that you'd like one. Give me some feedback on the show. I have three codes remaining. Uh, two of them are gone. There are three remaining. And if you would like to support me so that I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes. Or if you want to send me some IOTA, reach out to me and I'll get you an address. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with TheQuantumDaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out TheQuantumDaily.com, which I have linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.